Well, good afternoon, everyone. It's good to be here. Let me uh, just pray for us as we get into this psalm. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word and for all its richness and realness, for all that it can teach us, for the ways in which it shapes all of our lives. Father, we ask that you would help us, help me, to come before your word humbly, ready to listen, ready to hear what you have to teach us. Father, free us from distractions of all different kinds and help us as we live in this world to be a people who are seeking you and seeking to bring honour and glory to you and live lives for your kingdom. We ask that you would be with us now, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. When I was about 16, one or two of you may remember this, I was at a church family day out in Otley, and I was playing football with a few others when a random person came across the field and pretty much, this was not a person at the, fa- at the church day, pretty much totally out of the blue, punched me in the face. It's quite something that, isn't it? <laughs> and through a series of events that I didn't really plan for, I ended up taking this guy to court <laughs> because he denied that he was ever there on that day. And my main memory of being at court was the lawyer or the solicitor or whatever you call them who was acting on behalf of him because he said to me, I put it to you that you were the one who started the fight. You insulted him first and you threw the first punch. And I remember saying, no, not at all. How can you say that? That's not what happened in any way. I was the victim, albeit of a pretty small crime. (laughs) But here I was being accused of being the criminal, the, the perpetrator, the one who was in the wrong. Well, maybe as we read, you noticed as we read Psalm 25 just there, that something rather interesting is taking place. It would be good if you have Bibles on your phones or you've brought Bibles uh, to just keep your finger in the page and be looking as we go through it. This psalm is written by David. He's the great king of Israel and he's clearly experiencing a moment of great distress and struggle. We see, verse 1, that David is kind of putting his trust in God in in, in some situation because, verse 2, he has enemies, those who have the very real potential to triumph in some way over him. And if you glance at verse 16 onwards, well, we find David is lonely, afflicted, full of anguish and pain. He is clearly the victim of a far worse situation than being punched in the face. He's the victim of a situation gone wrong. And you might expect that the whole of this psalm has this theme, that David would continue to pray that God would deliver him and crush these enemies, etc., etc. And that's there. 
But in verses 4 and 5, David starts to ask that God would teach him and guide him. And then in verse 7, he says, Remember not the sins of my youth and my rebellious ways. And we're thinking, huh? All of a sudden, David's not the victim, but the sinner. And just look with me at the way that this is almost woven into the fabric of this psalm. Verse 8, God instructs sinners. Verse 11, forgive my iniquity, though it is great. Verse 18, take away all my sins. Here we find David, not the one being wronged, but the one having done the wrong. And something about that, I think, feels rather strange. If we do the wrong thing, then we need to confess and we deserve punishment. If we're the victims, then we need justice and deliverance. The two are rightly separated, and so they should be. And bad things don't happen to us because we do bad things. That's not what this psalm teaches at all. And yet, something about this resonates, does it not? There's a, a musician that I quite like, called, a guy called Sam Fender. And he writes a song with all the cynicism of kind of today's youth about evil that existed in the past. And the song finishes with 12 repeated lines of the evil is still not gone. The evil is still not gone. We don't really need to be a genius social critic, do we, to recognise that something about our world just doesn't quite feel right. There's something broken, imperfect, flawed. And yet it's not quite true that we're all just passive victims either. There's a second line that Sam Fender repeats in that song, and it's this. I want to be anybody else but me. Have you ever felt that? Do you ever look at other people and think, well, they've, they seem to have got it all made. I almost just wish I could kind of climb out of my own skin and stop thinking the way I think or stop being the way I am. I can't seem to be the person I wish I was. I want to be anybody else but me. How are you feeling this Boxing Day? Christmas is a time of great joy, and rightly so. I'm praying and hoping that your Christmas has been one of great joy. And for Christians, it's great joy because it it, it signals the greatest news that has ever, the greatest event of human history. But Christmas can often also be tinged with real sorrow, loneliness, bereavement, strife, covid New Year's is a time of great optimism, isn't it? Surely 2022 will be better than 2021. Surely. But it can feel cyclical at the same time. Every year, why can't I change? And as we sit here this Sunday, with Christmas on one side and New Year's on the other, how do you feel? We live in a world in which things sometimes go wrong and somehow, some way, we're also implicated in that wrongness 
2. Well, it's these two points that are going to shape our sermon today. Very simple. As we learn, along with David, what it looks like to live in a world that is just a little bit broken. And firstly, from verses 8 to 15, we're going to see that in a broken world in which you are sometimes the one who does the wrong, be humble and have confidence. In a broken world in which you are the wrongdoer, be humble and have confidence. And then from verses 16 to 22, we will see that in a broken world in which you are the one who is wronged, in which things go wrong, in which things hurt, be waiting and have hope. Hope that makes sense. In a world in which you are the wrongdoer, be humble and have confidence. And in a world in which you are the wronged, be waiting and have hope. Uh, and have hope. I should have really had some slides, but I don't. So sorry about that. So verses eight to fifteen. You've possibly heard this story. It's perhaps untrue, of the London newspaper which in the early 1900s posed the question, what is wrong with the world today? And they invited various sort of famous people to respond. I wonder what you would say. Politics, poverty, the media, social injustices. Well, they would all be good answers, I think. But one well-known author and writer, a man named G.K. Chesterton, He wrote back, answering this question, what is wrong with the world today? And he said, dear sirs, I am, yours sincerely, G.K. Chesterton. What is wrong with the world today? I am. And David seems to articulate something similar in these verses. In verse 11, he says, forgive my iniquity, that just means sin, though it is great. David gets things wrong. We get things wrong. What is wrong with the world today? Well, on some level, it's us. But how then can we live? If I am the problem, what is the solution? Well, David ends verse 7, following his confession of sin, by affirming one of the most basic truths that we can affirm about God. You are good. And this theme seems to form this almost this bounty of praise that we see in verses 8 onwards. The Lord is good and upright. He guides and he teaches. He's loving and faithful. I want to ask you, who are you good to? easy, isn't it, I think, to be good to someone that you like, to someone who is kind of good to you in return. You have a kind of relationship. It's much, much harder, I think, to lean towards someone who rejects you or betrays you or hurts you. That's hard. But God is not like us. Just look, verse 8, at who he is good and upright to. He instructs sinners in his ways. He does not instruct the strong, the confident, the capable, the powerful, the people who have it all together and know exactly what they're doing. No, he instructs the broken, the one who is a sinner, 
the one who is sinning while they are sinning, he instructs. God's very orientation almost is to move towards you even as you pull away from him. That's quite something. And the response, therefore, for human beings who sometimes mess it up, who sometimes get it wrong, is not to grit their teeth and try really, really hard to do a bit better. No, the response is humility. God guides, verse 9, the humble in what is right, the one who knows and admits their weakness and limitations, the one who isn't standing tall but is bowed low, bringing their sins and struggles before God and asking for his forgiveness, deliverance and protection. Friends, in a broken world in which you are sometimes the wrongdoer, be humble. I think that there are three things in this psalm that we can expect when we adopt this kind of humility. In many ways, what David is doing here is he's almost praying God's promises back to him. He's kind of praying, God, you've already promised this. And in so doing, he's kind of saying, this is what I'm expecting when I come to you in this way. And the three things are God's instruction, verse 12, God's prosperity, verse 13, and God's friendship, verse 14. We've already seen the first one, God's instruction, and it's repeated here in verse 12. God will instruct the one who fears the Lord. Fearing the Lord, it doesn't really mean being afraid of God. It means having a certain posture when you come before the king. There's a book series that I really like, uh, and it's set in the time of the Tudors. You know the Tudors, the kind of 1500s kings and queens of England. Uh, and the main character in the book, he's a, he's a hunchback. He, he has a physical disability. And on one particular occasion, he comes and meets face to face Henry VIII. You know, Henry VIII, big, large king, six wives. And what does this great and powerful king do? Well, he laughs and he mocks his disability. Friends, God is not like the king of England. When you come before the king of kings, weak though you may be, he does not mock, he does not laugh, he does not despise, And he is not angry. When you come in humility, he instructs, teaches, and guides. The second thing that God promises here, that David is praying back to God, is this word prosperity. We all want to be prosperous, don't we? We want things to go well in our lives, to live in comfort and in happiness, and we do all sorts of things to try and bring that about. We work hard, we get good jobs, so we can pay the bills and raise our families. And they're not bad things at all. But David here gives us almost the real secret to prosperity, walking in humility. The man who fears the Lord will spend his days in prosperity, verse 13. 
Maybe you're thinking, though, that's not true. I'm trying to walk with the Lord, but I'm afflicted with chronic pain. I'm walking with God, but my budget is down to the wire every month. I'm humbly seeking God, but wrestling with my mental health. Spending my days in prosperity? You're glancing down at the text to check that that word's there. Surely that's a pipe dream, a preacher's gimmick, a rhetoric, the rhetoric of frauds and televangelists. A fantasy crutch to just make people feel a little bit better. God doesn't promise wealth and health. Who are you kidding? Well, let me explain. God does promise you prosperity. It says it right here. And sometimes... That prosperity has a materiality to it. When you obey God's word in God's world, things are going to go well, often. But not always, and never fully, at least in this life. And any material prosperity here in this psalm and in our lives, well, it ultimately points, I think, to a spiritual prosperity, an overriding peace an assurance that even as things fall apart, God is good. Some translations offer for uh, verse 13 the phrase, his soul shall abide in well-being. This is soul prosperity. You will spend your days resting in the Lord because he is the Lord and nothing can pull you away from that. Amen. <laughs> and I think that this links with the final thing in verse 14, the Lord's friendship. I want us to dwell on the word confide. Who do you confide in? The word means really to cultivate intimate company. Or, or to have a confidential conversation. It's to reveal something personal, maybe something very private. We don't confide in the stranger in the street. We confide in our spouses or our close friends or maybe our parents. And we expect their confidence too. And so verse 14 is outstanding. The Lord confides in those who fear him. The idea here is deep and close friendship. But the surprise is that this verse doesn't say that we confide in God. That would be almost remarkable in and of itself. But that God confides in us. That the God of all creation, the King of kings, has something intimate to say to you. I mean, that's mind-boggling, isn't it? And so what is it that God wants to say? What is he telling us? What is he confiding in us? Well, the second part of verse 14, he's making his covenant known. The covenant refers really to the whole history of God's relationship with his people, in which he's saying, I love you, I will be with you. I will protect you. You will be my people and I will be your God. Do not fear. 
Do not fear as you walk through this life with all its confusion. Trust in me. This is God, in a way, whispering sweet nothings in the ears of his people. And you have that today. You the broken, you the weak, you the one hardly offering anything, you have that kind of relationship, though you are a sinner, with God, walking hand in hand with the creator of the universe who cares about you, knows you, and has promised to be with you. But don't forget where it all began. Who does the Lord guide, verse 9? Well, it's not the strong, but the limping. In a broken world in which you are the wrongdoer, be humble and have confidence that as you walk in humility, God is with you. In verse 15, David then starts to speak of a snare that his feet are in. And this kind of transitions us into the second part of the psalm. David is, is sort of trapped in some way, like a helpless animal. You may remember our dog, Finley. Uh, and I think this illustration has been used before in church. The occasion where he got a, a, a stick trapped in his mouth like this. And because he is a dog and has neither human hands or human brain, he doesn't have the ability to get the stick out of his mouth himself or indeed stay still so that we could get it out. He was trapped and he needed someone greater than himself for deliverance. And such appears to be David's situation here. And this kind of language transitions us into the second sort of interwoven theme of this psalm which places the spotlight not on David as the one who has done the wrong, but as the one who has been wronged. He's had the wrong done to him. He's the victim, in other words. And the language here, it really is rather powerful and painful. David is lonely and afflicted, verse 16. He's got troubles and their heart troubles. This is an anguish, an inner turmoil. There's distress here, verse, eight, uh, verse 18. And those enemies that he spoke about in the opening verses, well, they seem to be growing, increasing, verse 19. And the ferocity with which they hate him and want to hurt him is growing. These, these seem to be killers. David's very life could be in danger here. Now, at this point, you might find it difficult to relate to David in some way. Because we don't appear to have the same physical enemies who hate us with this kind of ferocity. But in understanding who these enemies are and, tra and, and translating that to us, well, we need to recognize who David was in the Bible. David was the king of Israel, uh, of God's people. And so his kingdom was, in a certain sense, the kingdom of God on earth. And so his enemies, well, they refer to anyone or anything that is opposed to the rule and to the reign of God. 
In the New Testament, we don't have the same physical kingdom of Israel, but Jesus repeatedly speaks of the spiritual kingdom of God. Not a physical land, but rather anywhere where God is worshipped as king, and the enemies of this kingdom are the same. Broadly, it would be anyone or anything that is opposed in some measure to God's rule on earth, or or anything that emphasises that the goodness of God's rule has been interrupted by a usurper. In the broadest sense, therefore, this refers to all sin and brokenness on earth. Because it all points to a world in some way separated from the goodness of God's rule. Terminal cancer. That's an enemy of God's kingdom. It's an eruption of brokenness into a perfect world. A horrendous manifestation of the pain and trauma of a world gone wrong. World hunger is an enemy of God's kingdom. The betrayal of a friend, the bite of the cold, the stress of a bank balance. They're all enemies of God's kingdom. But in a narrower sense, the enemies of God's kingdom, more specifically, well, it refers to persecution, right? Both indirect and direct to those who stand against God's people, the church. We in the West have not really felt the sting of this for quite some time, but it is a reality. We do not live in a world in which our governments or our institutions love God. And the world, hating God, will in some way hate his people. How then do we live? In a world that hurts that buffets and breaks, in which bad things happen to all people and trouble will come to God's people, how can we live? Well, the answer from this psalm is to wait. You've all seen, I presume, fantasy films and books like Harry Potter, Lord of the Rings, Star Wars, right? They all have the same basic plot. There's a big baddie and evil enemies. The world's gone wrong in some way and it looks like it's on the brink. But the hero fights and victory is won. They wouldn't really be bestsellers, would they, if Harry forgot his wand or Frodo dropped the ring. They end with victory. But do you notice how this psalm ends differently? There's no dramatic climax here in which God powerfully restores and redeems and saves. The redemption, verse 22, well, it remains in the future. David stays in anguish and all Israel remains in trouble. It's like a huge dot, dot, dot. There's not really a happy ending, no grand defeat of the big baddie, and and no glorious return to paradise, at least right here. It's simply a broken world, still being a broken world, with God's people in it, waiting, trusting, and hoping. 
in a broken world in which you are the wronged, in which wrong things happen, be waiting. What can we then expect as we wait? Again, this psalm is David praying God's promises back to him. What can we expect as we wait? Isn't this just kind of fantasy language? Well, we've already seen in this psalm God instructing the humble, delighting to make known his covenant to his people. And as we move through redemption history, that's the story of the whole of the Bible, as we watch God's people waiting, we find that God is a God who acts. He does indeed deliver David. You can go and read some of those stories. But this isn't necessarily about David's personal trauma. This is about God's people. And God does deliver his people from a broken world in which they are wronged and wrongdoers. And he does that with a baby in a manger. Jesus Christ, God's own son, came to this earth, was born and lived a human life. And he came preaching the kingdom of God, reversing the brokenness of our world, quite literally defeating those enemies of the kingdom, feeding the hungry, healing the sick, clothing the poor. And yet Christ was the ultimate victim, the only one who truly wasn't a wrongdoer and yet was violently, brutally and unjustly wronged. Journeying right into the heart of our broken world to death on a cross in order to redeem and restore. Christ took all of our sin and all the world's brokenness on his shoulders so that we can walk in a world restored. Are you a sinner? Do you know your own sin? Turn to Christ today, this Christmas. Are you hurting? Do you know your own sorrow and struggle in this world? Turn to Christ today. And we live, like David, like Israel, in a world in which God has spoken in which God has acted, but not all is yet made new. A day will come when there will be no more tears, but it's not here yet. Our world remains broken. 2022, I think, though it will be a year of tremendous blessing, I'm sure, it will also be a year of personal and collective brokenness. We will be wronged. Wronged because life just goes wrong or wronged because people will actively be against us as God's people. We will do wrong. And in a world in which you are the wronged, be waiting and have hope. Like David, verse 21, 
Verse 21, place your hope in the Lord. However you're feeling this boxing day, whatever sins are bringing you down, whatever struggles are buffeting you, trust in God. Christ has come. In Christ, God instructs the limping and is redeeming this world. Justice will reign, evil will not win, and the enemies of God's kingdom will not prevail. In a world in which you are the wrongdoer, be humble and have confidence that as you come before God in humility, he is with you and for you. And in a world in which you are wronged, be waiting and have hope that a day is coming where there will be no more tears. Amen.